to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and please rate and review the show. Reminder, we're streaming live on Sportsnet's YouTube channel and airing live on Sportsnet 360. Monday to Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. I'm joined in studio by my guys, Jessica Sharo and Joe Wolfon of The Score, Cash Wolfon. How you guys doing? Good, man. Have you guys figured out how to use the headphones? No, wait, we're trying to figure I, out. I'm not hearing thing. anything, but yeah, right, we're not getting into volume. Okay. Hold on, hold things, on. But you know what? It's all good. They're, they're, they're just lowering the volume of your voice, which I think is, is that the intended purpose here? Or? Oh, there we go. Look at there Will. Will, host and IT guy. Oh, well, you know, back in the score days, this is exactly what I used to do. So um, what's going on, man? My Pound the Rock crew back with me again. Alex, uh, conspicuously absent. Um, can we, re- I can reveal what Alex is up to. Not to say that, you know, this is the only reason he's not here, but uh, he's, he's getting buckets. He's getting, he's getting buckets, buckets, dropping right dimes. He's literally at Scotiabank Arena as we speak, scoring uh, more points. I know he, we were there on Tuesday collectively, but he had to go back once again because um, <clears throat> I think they're celebrating Filipino heritage or something. Right, and Alex is not Filipino. No, 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 no. He is. He is just in, a friend of the community. He, he is a, sure. Yeah, he's a friend of the community. Yeah, I would love to hear him name three Filipinos that aren't Jared Manitad, our uh, <laughs> producer. Did he take Jr. At least he did not take Jr. At least. Uh, great question from uh, from Derek. How you guys doing, man? You guys all right? Yeah, we're good, man. Ready to ready to talk raps. Mm. Okay, we're gonna talk raps in the first segment, and then we're gonna transition to, to more general basketball stuff. Um, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts. Um, these are topics that, for me, obviously, I'm kind of a little sick of tar- uh, talking about it because I have to do it every day. But you know, you guys have a fresh perspective, and plus, you guys are also very very dedicated Raptors watchers. Um, and yeah, you know, obviously Jacoproto arrived at the trade deadline and I'm sort of curious right now in terms of what you think in terms of what problems did it solve and sort of what problems did it create? Uh, Wolfon, I'll start with you. Um, yeah, the problems that it solved, a lot of them are pretty intuitive and things that we could have said were going to be solved before we even saw him play a game with the team. Right. But, um, I, I was just checking before we came on, according to cleaning the glass, which filters out garbage time. They're 30 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. Wait, <laughs> hold on. Are yeah. you serious? They, they serious. defend like the best defense in the league when he's on the court. 106.3 right. per 100%. So yeah, about All 20 right. about twenty points per 100 better on defense and 10 points per 100 better on offense with him on the court. Now, does that have something to do with the, the nature of his backups and how the Raptors reserves have been playing lately? Mm-hmm. It does. So you've got the Jokic MVP case going on. Well, look, they're plus 11 per 100 with him on the floor. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... It's not just that they've been terrible with him off, which they have been, but they've been really good with him on. Defensively, it's like everything we've been talking about the entire year with the Raptors' defense and why it was kind of imperative that they go and get a traditional big man. They like to play this hyper-aggressive style. They really like to pressure the ball. Their on-ball defense, like, you know, they want to make people uncomfortable and force turnovers, but they're pressing up on ball handlers, and what does that lead to? It leads to a lot of blow-bys. And when you don't have, like, a legitimate anchor back there to protect the rim, then you're just going to get destroyed by all of those blow-bys, and you're going to get scored on a ton at the rim, which is what was happening before he got here. And now that's not happening to nearly the same extent. Like, when he's out there, opponents are shooting way less frequently at the rim. They're scoring way less effectively at the rim on the shots that they take there. They are getting to the free throw line less. They're getting fewer offensive rebounds. Like every element of defense has been better with him out there. And the way that they want to play just makes more sense when you have somebody to be a backstop essentially behind all of the ball pressure that you're throwing. So 
that's kind of the obvious stuff. And then offensively, I mean, man, it's been really nice to have a, a, a proper role man. Yeah. Somebody who sets good, solid screens, whose timing and footwork on the roll is, like, immaculate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen how effective he can be just with that little push shot on the short roll. And his playmaking on the short roll has been a really welcome addition as well. Um, he can do a lot of passing out of the high post. Like, I like recently, I feel like they've been running a lot of this action where Fred is kind of setting that flex screen for mm-hmm. OG to cut out of the corner. And Pirtle is, like, hitting him with those passes from the high post. It just allows them to do a lot of different stuff. And, like, it, it's allowed them to become a more pick-and-roll oriented offense, which is something that's been lacking for this team for the last two years. They've been, like, one of the lowest volume pick-and-roll teams in the NBA. And that's just a hard way to win in this day and age when you don't have Steph Curry on your team. You know, like, the teams that yep. that uh, are forced to lean away from pick-and-roll play, you know, have a hard time scoring. And I think it's just made things a lot easier for them They've been able to lean into into the pick-and-roll game a lot more with him there. And just, like, I, I mentioned this a bunch of times early in the season, like, the Raptors did not have a single player on the team outside of Otto Porter, who played, like, 100 minutes, mm. with a true shooting percentage above 60%. Yikes. Which, in this day and age, where, like, the league average is 58%, is nuts. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, now they have Yak, who is not doing it on a particularly high volume, but still to have a guy who he's like a 70% true shooting, like just to have a guy who can put the ball in the basket with some measure of efficiency has been really nice. So that's, that's all the ways in which he's helped Uh, in terms of like the problems that he's created. I mean, not really any that I can, that I can see, like you can point to the Pascal stuff and say that maybe it's made it harder for him to find his role in the offense. I don't know if I really buy that. I think that might be a little bit overstated. I agree. I don't think Scotty or Precious playing five was stretching the floor either. We actually, we haven't mentioned one thing that uh, that Yak has solved yet. That's Fred Van Vliet. Oh, yeah. Because he's, he's yeah. helped fix Fred Van Vliet in a lot of ways. And I'm not yeah. going to say it's all Yak, but I think, you know, a lot of the points Wolf was making there about the screening and and... He's one of the best screeners in the league. Like, just his ability to get guys open with mm-hmm. his screens. And then, yeah, obviously the other, like, some of the traditional elements that he brings to the offense that they didn't have before, whether it's, like, interior efficiency, uh, a roller after screening, a guy who can make plays on the short roll or from the, the elbows, the high post, or whatever. But if you look at how rejuvenated Fred Van Vliet looks since Pirtle has arrived here, mm-hmm. both in terms of the quality of looks he's getting himself off screens and also passing lanes that weren't there before, because he now has a true big man who's setting solid screens. And then I, I talked about this the last time we were on here, not just with his rolling, but in general, seeming to know where to go within an offensive set to create a passing lane or to get, you know, create a passing lane for himself, which in turn then opens up a cut for someone else. Like all of that in, intuitive stuff that he has. So I was actually looking at these numbers because Wolf and I are, are doing a piece over at Score App, looking at all the biggest deadline acquisitions around the league and how they performed their new teams. Mm-hmm. And listen to these numbers for Fred Van Vliet's effective field goal percentage. So his shooting numbers taking into account both twos and threes this year. Pre-deadline, 1,740 minutes, Fred Van Vliet had an effective field goal percentage of 48.6. That's bad. Since the deadline, but with Pirtle off the court, 120 minutes, effective field goal percentage, 39.1%. Okay, that's horrendous. (laughs) With Yaka Pirtle on the court, 250 minutes. 59% 59% effective field goal percentage. Wow. And again, I get it. There's some small sample size in there, and I'm not going to say that's all it is. Like, But at some point, those numbers don't lie, and especially when it does match the eye test. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great point. Um, 
you know, even when you look at some of the other metrics in terms of the specific two-man game, right? Like, nobody's assisted Yaka Proto more than Fred Van Vliet has since Yak has come to Toronto. In fact, I think Fred already has 26 assists to Yaka Proto. I think the when he played, you know, I don't know, more than two-thirds of the season with the Spurs, um, I think the leading assist man was, like, I think Trey Jones maybe was, like, 20, like 50. So Fred's already had half that part uh, with about, you know, 10, 11 games played with Jakob. And I, I'm curious to see, like, how many screen assists, like, Jakob has also suffered Fred or so. Because I thought, you know, in the fourth quarter against Denver, one of the big plays that really killed it was, you know, just a simple dribble handoff with Jakob Pearl, you know, giving it to Fred and then Fred pulling up for three. Uh, and that was really one of the nails in the coffin. Another nail in the coffin, Jakob Pearl pulled out a Euro step. Yeah. Which completely bamboozled Michael Porter Jr. <laughs> also, and allowed OG to get free for a dunk. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's been a, a really nice surprise. To your point about the screen assists, I also checked this for the piece we were writing up. So, since his debut uh, on February 10th, I think yeah. it was, Jakob Pertl obviously leads the team in screen assists. But he has more screen assists than the second, third, and fourth ranked Raptors combined. And one of those three guys is Fred. Yo, Fred. Yeah, like, wow, okay. Before the trade, he was like their primary... <laughs> Ball screener, like because yeah. they didn't have right. any big guys who could really do it. So he would screen for Scotty or screen for Pascal. Yeah, exactly. Like that was how they ran their offense. Was with like they they just inverted the pick and roll, and Fred was like their primary ball screener. And now you know when I, when we talk about them being able to lean more into pick and roll play, like that's that is who it benefits, right? Mm-hmm. Like Fred gets to be the guy on on the ball handling end of the pick and roll, and we get to see how far his passing chops have come. Like I think his pocket passing has been, and like, that is a credit to Pirtle, just sort of, like, having the timing down, being able to stay in the pocket and give sure. him a target. But I think Fred's done a really good job piloting the offense and orchestrating those pick-and-rolls, you know, at, both as a pull-up shooter and as a driver and as a playmaker. Uh, I think all of that has, has really benefited him. So um, I, I think it's been... Look, I, I was not a huge fan of the deadline that the Raptors had as a whole, in a vacuum because of the, the direction of the of the trade yeah i like it, the, the trade itself i you know even at the time i didn't think like on its face was necessarily a bad move and we talked about this and we were, were like if the raptors had done this like last off season we would have been doing somersaults yeah it was, it was sort of just the timing of it and the direction we felt the team could have gone of course instead but um just in in terms of like his fit with the team and the the different directions that it could take them i, I think it's looking like a really positive impact addition and one that, you know, if they're able to lock him up long-term in the summer, which I think there's every indication that they're going to do, then it's going to work out well for them in the short and the long-term. So that's very little to complain about in terms of Jakob fit with the team so far. That's fair. Um, also a, a nice person to interview. Um, listen to uh, yesterday's episode if you haven't already. Um, okay, so the bench, though. I feel like the bench... Jesus. I thought on paper... The bench should have been stronger because you've now added another bona fide starter. Um, and that now means that you have a starting caliber player going to the bench and that should strengthen the bench. However, um, since going to the bench, two guys who had performed pretty well um, in the starting lineup, uh, those being Precious Ochoa and Gary Trent Jr., those guys have not been able to replicate their success off the bench. Um, Cash, I, I mean, how much of that is just like they're no longer playing with the best playmakers on the team? those being Scotty, you know, Pascal, and Fred? Um, and how much of that is just, like, them trying to find their roles? Or how much of that do you think is, you know, you maybe just even human nature in terms of being a little bit disappointed that they had decent showings in the starting group and now they're having to ply their trade off the bench? To be honest with Gary, I think it's just a matter of the shot's not dropping. And shot's like, not dropping, okay. He, we know what he is. He's a gunner. 
of it. Like, that's why he, we always thought he was tailor-made to be a sixth man because he is very much a high-reward, uh, high-risk gunner on both ends. And for a while, the shot was falling, and it looked great. And there, look, there are plenty of games, especially during some of the Raptors' worst stretches of the season, where they were only even in games because Gary's shot was falling. And yep. he was creating for himself in ways almost no one else on the team can, maybe other than Pascal, and it was working. But the thing with Gary is if the shot's not falling, it's going to look really bad. And these last couple weeks, or the last few games at least, where I think he's combined for like, what, five points in the last three games or something, like something ridiculous. Um, it up. <laughs> he had, didn't he have an Ofer a couple he had of games ago? And he had two points the last yeah. game. Like, so... With Gary, I really don't think it's as dependent on, like, the playmaking him around him or or the guys around him. And it's just more so he's a gunner whose shot's not falling. And that's why, to me, he is more of a six-man kind of guy because you got to let him do what he does off the bench. With Precious, I'm not as sure. Precious has been pretty up and down all year. I mean, he looked really bad to start the year. Mm. Then he had a nice little stretch when they were on that road trip. Was it in Portland that he had that really good game? He had. He came back from injury. Yeah. yeah. And I think, for me... The interesting thing was that coincided with him going back to the starting lineup. Fair. And so I think I'm going to look up his uh, well, starter bench splits, but I can uh, tell you this. Good. I can tell you that since Yak uh, rejoined the team, obviously their their starters have been great. We know yep, that. Yep. But even when you when Precious was in the lineup for I think OG, I want to say, or maybe for Fred, I can't remember. But what with Precious and Yak both starting together, the Raptors' mm-hmm. numbers are still elite. Yeah. When Gary is in the starting five with Yak since February 10th. The numbers are awful. So to your point, maybe with Precious, it, with Precious, it is actually more about the guys around him, which makes sense because he's a little bit more dependent on the talent around him than a gunner like Gary is. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to say that about Precious offensively where, you know, he, he I think, needs guys around him, like probably better playmakers. Like it would be nice maybe to tether his minutes to Fred's just to have somebody who can kind of put him in better spots and... I think like it, it's helpful for, for him to have guys who can create rim pressure, which Gary doesn't really do a whole lot of because mm. that allows him. I mean, like whether it's kind of kickouts where then he's a, a, like able to attack closeouts and things like that, or just guys to kind of like siphon away a little bit of attention when they're rolling downhill. That allows him to kind of find those pockets of space that he needs to cut. I, I think that that would benefit him more than even just like playing in I don't know I like how would you just how would you describe like what the Raptors bench unit even is stylistically like I don't uh, bad okay well I know I know what Chris is supposed to do yeah he's supposed to hustle mm-hmm. right on transition crash the glass yeah hit the occasional 3 um but I think that's that's the, about it yeah that's the, <laughs> everyone else has like a strange role off the bench I would say where they they don't look completely comfortable there's no real structure to it and I guess yeah. that's not new like even last year it was kind of just Okay, go out there and create chaos and like play in that chaos. Sure. Or some turnovers, get out and run. That's pretty much it. And in the half court, I don't know, do whatever you have to do to try and figure it out. But um, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Precious is a guy offensively who just requires a little bit more structure in order to succeed. Mm. I, I, I'm a little bit more vexed and concerned, I guess you could say, about the defense where it's like, okay, maybe maybe he's not being optimized offensively with the guys that he's playing with, but... Why why are we seeing the defensive impact take such a hit? Like, why has he not really been an impediment around the rim in the way that we saw him do last year? Like, why isn't he? Why is he kind of less impactful in ball screen coverage than mm-hmm. he was last year when I thought he was, you know, arguably the best player on the team? Uh, I that that that's kind of what's been a little bit more disappointing to me. Is like I, you would hope 
that those bench groups could at least defend at a high level. Yep. And that hasn't been happening at all. Like, you expect them to struggle to score, even with with Gary kind of captaining those bench lineups, but you would hope that they could defend better than they've defended so far. Yeah, and and that's the part that's been disappointing to me. I, I just, because I, I, there are no other great options. I mean, I think we've heard this week Nick talk about, okay, we've recalled Christian Coloco from the G League um, and that he can play more at center. I mean, to be honest, the defense has, the defensive metrics of him at center are actually pretty solid. Yeah, they're elite, yeah. Um, but then I'm just like, okay, so if you're going to play Christian at center and if you're also going to play Precious and Boucher out there, then first off, the front court just looks really clogged. Like, there's not a single guy who can consistently do much of anything between those three front court players. Like, you, they can, yes, hit a three occasionally. They can, yes, like, get to some putbacks or roll. They're probably not going to be much space to roll. Yeah. You're also begging teams to zone against you, which the Raptors bench have struggled against all season. And it puts even more pressure for Gary to attack and create a shot, which probably he won't get all the way to the rim because of all the, the pressure. And also, he's not great at getting to the rim. So you're really just living and dying off of, like, mid-range pull-up jumpers. While you have great defense, so I don't know. I mean, but I at guess least the then you're you're leaning into something. Yeah, sure, I guess. But I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think for me the better solution would be for Precious to to sort of find whatever it is, like just to find that level on defense. Because it's not like we need to sort of make up for his defensive drop off. Like that shouldn't ever really be a thing with him. That should be one of the biggest strengths of his game. Mm-hmm. Um. By the way, the, the bench splits right now, um, obviously he plays more minutes with the starters, but he averages 13.4 points, 9.4 rebounds, um, and has a true shooting percentage of 60% um, with the starters in 11 games. And in 34 games coming off the bench this year, Precious is averaging 7.9 points, 5 rebounds, and has a uh, 51 true shooting percentage. That's bad, especially for a big. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's rough. Well, I mean, that, I think I tweeted it at the time, but the game against the Lakers was genuinely one of the biggest discrepancies I've ever seen. And I'm not even just talking about the numbers, which yep, the numbers yep. bear it out too. I'm talking about just like the eye test, watching it and and not being able to believe what I was seeing. I seldom remember an NBA game, let alone a Raptors game, where there was that big of a discrepancy between the quality of the starters and the quality of the bench. Like yeah. the Raptors starters, look, and I'm not saying the Lakers are the best team in the league, but like they looked like world beaters that night. They've looked really good in general since Yak got here. But the bench in that game was, like, abysmal does not describe it. It was embarrassing. Yeah. And all of those guys were, like, in the minus 20s. Yeah. In, like, 12 <laughs> or 13 minutes yeah. off the bench that game. If yeah. you, that was where they lost. If you look at, since Yak joined the starting lineup, like, the what the score was when the Raptors made their first substitution in all those games, there was, like, one game where it was tied and one game where they were down one or two. And every other game, they've been up by five-plus within the first six. A lot of them double digits. Mm-hmm. The yeah, last three, I think, nine-plus points within, like, five or six minutes. Like, yeah. they're getting off to great starts. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the thing that's been disappointing. But I do think that uh, at least now you have a stronger starting lineup, which I think last season that was the one of the strange things with the Raptors. They had more success last season, but their starting lineup wasn't great. Uh, in terms of plus-minus, they actually found a lot of success in transitional lineups with some bench players mixed in, notably guys like Precious and Chris. Yeah. Um, and then the, now they have the opposite problem, but I do feel c- confident that, you know, Nick can eventually find that answer. Um, speaking of Nick, he was um, speaking at practice last few days, um, and there was a lot of optimism around OG Anobi because of the fact that he's played some really, truly great defensive performances against some very, very tough matchups. Um, this is uh, Nick Nurse's comments when he was asked about OG's candidacy for some defensive uh, awards um, in, in a few months. I've said it a couple times here in the last couple of weeks. I'm not sure who's as versatile period 
right? And who's who's as effective on on any, even the winning teams, right? So he's certainly an all defensive team player in my mind for sure. If not, if not the winner of the award. Okay, uh, Wolfon, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, is OJ and OB first off a lock for all defense as as Nick is describing, and and is he a potential candidate for defensive player of the year? Uh, I'll start with Defensive Player of the Year and say that I, I guess you could say he's a candidate because I do think he's been probably one of the 10 best defensive players in the league this year. But okay. I, don't, I don't think he's going to make it onto too many ballots in terms of, like, the top three. He's a lock for not winning the award. Yeah. Like, and that's, again, no discredit to him. He's been unbelievable defensively this year. But I think at the top, it's kind of like Jaron and Brooke Lopez sort of running away from the rest of the pack. Mm-hmm. And... It's. I know Marcus Smart won last year, but it's just always sort of been a big man's award. And you have like, you know, there there's like a couple of years where Kawhi won and the year where Draymond Green won. I don't know how you want to characterize Draymond as like a big or a, a big wing hybrid, I guess. But Defensive unicorn. Yeah. And I mean, OG like guard centers. So Yeah, we just saw him guard AD and Jokic. Not um, bad. But he... He doesn't have that same level of impact around the rim, which is still like, right, even in a right. you know a three point heavy offensive environment. That's still the most valuable real estate on the court, and that's why big guys tend to win that award more than any other type of player. And the the impact that those guys have had uh, in that valuable real estate is just like astronomical. And I don't think you can. It's just hard to compare that to like more perimeter oriented defenders. Um, so I don't think he's really going to be in that mix. And then, like, the all-defense thing is so tough. And this is a conversation that we kind of touched on on our pod fairly recently. But, like, I would love to be able to say, yeah, OG is a stone-cold lock for an all-defensive team. And you could say that about him and not necessarily be wrong, but the problem is that you could say that about, like, four or five other guys at the forward spots. Right. Giannis. Giannis, Jaden McDaniels, Jaron Jackson... Uh, Draymond, mm-hmm. that's four right there. We Mo- left out Bridges. Bridges. Mobley. But Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Butler has been fantastic. I mean, he's always been, but like, he's kind of gone under the radar for how good he still has been oh, yeah, on yeah. both ends this season. Yeah. Like, he's been yeah. fantastic defensively. But like those, okay, if we're if we're like tearing it, I think those guys are still a cup below to me. Like to me, there's like, I would say six guys that all have like a really, really strong case to get one of those four forward spots okay so who, who are those six guys again uh jaron yep. who i think is a lock uh Giannis, who's probably a lock yeah i mean come on uh jaden mcdaniels who i think should be close to a lock like i not a lot of people are really talking about him but if you think about the you know, like the versatility that we laud og for mm-hmm. you get almost every bit of that with jaden like he's not as strong so he's not going to be guarding centers as often but he's the primary on point guards like half the time. Okay. Okay. Fair. And if you're you're looking at guys who can like marry on ball defense with legitimate rim protection, I don't think there's anybody in the league save for maybe Jaron. But Jaron's still doing like when he's guarding perimeter players, he's doing it on switches for like partial possessions, not like as the primary guy guarding Trey Young and Tyrese Halliburton for like an entire game. Where like Jaden will do that, and then when he's off ball, will also be like a legitimate weak side rim protector, very impactful low man defender. Okay. Like he does all that. So I think like he's part of that tier. OG is part of that tier. Mm-hmm. 
and Draymond, even though I think he's been like not quite as good as he was last year, not quite as good as he's been at his peak, and the Warriors' defense as a whole has been kind of disappointing, he's still such a game-changing defender. Yeah. Like, just all the stuff that he's been good at his entire career is, like, still very much there. Like, he captains that defense. He was, like, the best thinker and communicator out there on the floor that there is in the league, like, thinking two, three steps ahead, making, like, ridiculous reads and rotations. Um, so that's five. And then Mobley, like, I wouldn't maybe put him in that group just because I thought he got off to a bit of a slow start this season. But for the last, like... Yeah, he's been... He's been the last, like, six or eight weeks, he's been ridiculous defensively. So... That's it's really really steep competition, and I think OG would be very worthy of one of those spots. But I also don't think it would be some grave tragedy if he didn't make it because there are a lot of other guys in competition for those spots that would be you know equally deserving. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a locked in my mind. I think OG is one of the four best defensive forwards in basketball, but I don't think it's a lock that that is the general consensus. And I think that's what people have to remember a lot of times when we're talking about, oh, is this guy a lock for this award or this on, like end-of-season honor, is that you have to also consider whether he's going to get the votes. And I'm, like, I think people around the league respect and appreciate what OG does. But if you're asking me if I think he'll end, like he's a lock to get the media votes to end up with one of only four spots, no, I don't think that's a lock at all. Like, again, I brought up Butler, and I'm not, I'm not saying Butler's been better defensively than OG this year, but would it shock me if Jimmy Butler ends up getting more all-defensive team votes than OG and Adumi? No, not at all. And so that's why I think, like, to say it's a lock, and I get what Nick's doing. He's caping for his guy, as coaches mm. do. I just think Fellow even though— clients. Yeah, yeah, true, that too. Yeah. Even though OG deserves an all-defensive team spot this season, I think he's far from a lock. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Like, your point with the voting is very astute because um, OG was also very good at defense last year, um, as he has been— in throughout his time in the NBA. Obviously, last year, he was more banged up. Um, but last year, OG and OB got one single second-place vote, or second-team second vote for all defense. Um, OG and, and, and Ginobili. Yeah, I think that's that, that's part of the reason why uh, the, the, the case was tanked. Um, Scotty probably had two votes for uh, second-team um, all defense last year. And then Fred got two first-place votes and 37 second-place votes um, among player in the Raptors. So... We're talking about OG last year only got one second-place vote, right? So it would be actually a big jump for him to get into this spot. Now, of course, OG's been healthier this year. And, you know, assuming he finishes out the rest of the season, um, you know, I think he has a stronger case just based on games played alone. I mean, also, you can look at the results, right? Him guarding DeRozan and DeRozan having, like, I don't know, like eight points or something like that. Him guarding Bradley Beal, who had, you know, below, below shooting averages in both the ten, two times he played, um, you know, the Raptors recently. You know, him guarding Jokic and Jokic having a really quiet game. Um, and one of those where the Raptors just unfortunately couldn't close out. Or AD, coming off a stretch where he was averaging like 33 points a game, scores like eight points. Now, unfortunately, the rest of the Raptors bench, as we talked about, we don't have to rehash the whole thing. But the point is that, like, you know, OG is definitely deserving of being that consideration. I think that for a lot of people, though, the tiebreaker goes to, like, okay, what's your overall team defense? And I do feel like that's where the case might cut against the Raptors. It's not like anyone in the league is playing, like, phenomenal defense, really, that, stand out, that stands out above the pack. But the Raptors are, like... 16th on defense right and i think when people look at this award they're probably going to look at okay well you know look listen if it's like for example og versus mobley they'll look at it like the Cavs are at 109.8 defensive rating that's like 0.1 off of milwaukee at 109.7 for best in the league so they're just going to use that as a tiebreaker 
you know, and, and we're not even mentioning other guys who should be also in that consideration in terms of just like, for example, like I know D- Dylan Brooks has a terrible reputation and he just shoved a cameraman last night for no reason, which doesn't even have anything to do with him just being an agitator on the court. Like, why are you agitating actual civilians? I think he's doing like their jobs. buying too much into being Stone Cold Steve Austin just because he dresses like Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> Uh, does he come the Stone Cold Steve Austin come to games in just a vest, just a puffer well, vest? That's how he'd rock into. Yeah, he'd uh, oh, wow, the okay. leather the leather vest, walking in jean shorts. All right, all right, fair, fair. Uh, it actually does sound a lot like um, well, most of what he's dressing like recently. But no, but like when he's on the court, he's actually a very, very good defender as well. Um, you know, you even look like Bridges, for example. We didn't even mention Bridges. You know what I mean? So there, there are a lot of candidates. I do believe that OG should be in that prime group because he is. I mean, I don't know. There's not that many other wing defenders I would take to win a one-off versus OG, but I do feel like in terms of voting, that's where the disadvantage might lie. Yeah. Well, just to go back to what you were saying about the voting last year, I mean, the, the votes that Fred got versus the ones that OG got, I think that indicates that those forward spots are much more competitive than the guard spots. Like, I don't think if you right, ask, you right. could ask those voters and they would probably say that OG is a better defender than Fred, but Fred's competing for guard spots where right, right. The, the, the bar is a little bit lower. The fact that Scotty got more votes than OG, what that says to me is, like, if, you, if you're thinking about the voting body for these all-defense and all-NBA teams, I mean, they're just largely made up of beat writers who spend the majority of their time watching the teams that they cover. And it's hard to get a sense of, like, the entire league and who's a better defender than who. And that's how you get votes like that that are just, like... If you think that Scotty Barnes is a better defender than OG Ananobi, like either you haven't watched any Raptors games or you have no idea what you're watching when you are watching their games. So it's a lot of name recognition stuff, too. And that's the problem. And that's why there are guys who long past their defensive primes, when they're no longer anywhere near all defensive level, continue to make all defensive teams based on their reputations. I mean, right, it's right. like Derek Jeter winning those late gold gloves at shortstop. Exactly. Like, wow. I mean, like, right. even like. Uh, 2019-20 was the year when I was, like, absolutely convinced OG was going to make an all-defensive team. 100% deserved to. And co- but Wolfond, everyone on the Raptors was a good defender that year. So why should we celebrate any one individual yeah. one of those? Um, Sorry. Ka- Ka- I Kawhi. facetious. I know, I know. But, like, Kawhi wound up getting a spot. And I don't know if OG would have been, like, the next in line. I don't remember how the voting shook out that year. But Kawhi, who was still a good defender at the time, in my mind was not all-defensive caliber at that point. Got that in the regular season, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Got that last spot over OG. And that's like, you see that a lot where it is kind of about name recognition and reputation. For sure. That tends to outlast the actual defensive value of some of the players who are getting those spots. So that that's what just makes it really difficult. And I really hope that he does get that recognition. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's somebody like Jimmy Butler or Mikhail Bridges who gets that spot when, when OG doesn't, I think that there will be people who have a legitimate gripe. But if it's one of those guys that I mentioned who I think have been every bit as good as OG defensively this year, then I don't think people will have reason to, to carp about it too much. But um, just one last point. I know this isn't really what we're talking about, but you mentioned like OG guarding Jokic and guarding AD. And just to take it back to Pirtle and like the impact that he's had, if you, if you think back to last season or seasons prior where the Raptors have been super thin mm-hmm. at the center spot, and OG's had to take those assignments. I think you're really seeing the difference in terms of like what it looks like when he is guarding the center pretty much as the center and when he is guarding the center like as the the power forward. Like when he's guarding Jokic and Pirtle is also on the floor. When he's guarding AD and Pirtle is also on the floor. 
that's like a much different assignment and it and it right, completely right. changes the shape of the Raptors defense when like he is able to be the first line of defense against those guys but there is also a last line of defense like somebody behind yes. him right. and that makes that sort of schematic adjustment have so much more bite right because you confront the you confront the post a lot more try to deny touches exactly. and yes if the pass goes over the top you at least have someone rotating over with real size exactly yeah yeah, no, it's true, man. And I think that's look. I think the OG defensive player that you're, or not defensive player that you're, I don't think that's how possible. But like all defense case is fairly easy to make. You can even look at it as something like, look. I mean, he leads the league in steals. That's a, a standout point for him, right? It's easier to look at something like that. I, I know for a lot of voters, they look at more deeply than that. But some people look at who's leading the league in blocks. Jaron Jackson, who's leading the league in steals. OG, let's put him on the team and let's go from there. That wouldn't be a wrong approach to sort of take, I, I guess, if you if that's sort of the, the way they're going at it too. But, I mean, I think the versatility point is is something that Nick highlighted, and I think that, it, I mean, it is true. Outside of point guards, OG really guards everybody. And and that's something that is truly rare, especially because I do feel like there are more of those, like, you know, like the McDaniels types who can guard down and get, you know, use their length to con- and their quickness to con- contain guards. But I do feel like it's a little bit rarer to see, like, you know, those super bulky forwards who can also guard a guy as small as Bradley Beal, who's going to come around a lot of screens, but also have enough size in the post to sort of hold up a guy like AD or a guy like Jokic. Not individually, obviously there's going to be help, but like still, that is still pretty rare to me. And so, I mean, I don't think Nick is wrong to do this. And I also think, by the way, it's good for Nick to do this because he is asking him to do the hardest job every single night defensively. So you might as well at least reward him by by trying to push it in the media. Yeah, and... I mean, again, I know it's maybe not as talked about anymore, but, like, do you remember coming into the year early in the season, the reports that maybe OG wasn't thrilled with his offensive role on the team or whatever? This is another, like, to your point, mm. he's asking him to have the toughest job every night defensively, which I'm yep. sure OG embraces. Like, he knows how good he is defensively. Sure. But while also, at least in OG's mind, putting him in an offensive role that OG thinks is beneath, maybe thinks is beneath him or whatever. So I do think... Anytime you can also pump his tires publicly, it's yeah. not a bad thing. Anytime Nick Nurse can publicly praise his players instead of dragging <laughs> them is just, you know, great for morale, I'm sure. You know what? Let's that's hope it. no one asks about the bench then. <laughs> oh, that's fair. Um, okay, we are going to take that quick break. Uh, I've been your host, Willow, and you've been listening to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. On the other side, we will talk about the game happening tonight between the Raptors and the uh, OKC Thunder, which you can listen to here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Have you checked out Bet Rivers yet? Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. Get in the action this basketball season with thousands of betting options. Plus, don't forget about Bet Rivers Sportsbook award winning customer service. It's a whole new game with Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook. Must be 19 plus, available in Ontario only. Please play responsibly. If you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone close to you, please contact Connext Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sports Radio Network. I'm your host, William Lou. Continue to be joined by Jessica Shower and Joe Wolfond. Um, salute to producer Derek for remembering to play the uh, HBK theme for <laughs> for our very own HBK <laughs> to my right. Um, okay, uh, the Raptors are playing Shea Gilgis Alexander tonight. And um, yeah, I'm, I just wanted to take 10 minutes to sort of appreciate Shea 
and put some respect on his game because he is genuinely one of the most fun players to watch. I'm very excited to see him um, tonight. Just some quick stats uh, about Che's game before we sort of launch into a discussion about him and also where he ranks among the best young point guards in the league. Um, Shea leads the league at drives per game. He drives 24 times a game. Um, the next closest, I think, is Jaw at like 21. Um, Luca does like 20 drives a game. But for him to have 24 drives per game is absurd, especially because he shoots 51% of the time. Or he, he shoots 51% on those drives. He scores 17 points alone just off driving to the basket. Um, and, of course, he you know hands out a lot of assists out of that as well. He's shooting 50% on mid-range pull-ups. One of the big reasons why he's such a, a lethal clutch player as well. But um, he just has every counter in the book. Very, very crafty. Nick always talks about how he has an amazing uh, first step. And, of course, the best part about it is he's uh, committed to the Canada um, men's national program as well. So we get to see him uh, more closely at, at home uh, internationally as well. The only thing I would say about his game is he doesn't shoot the three that much. But listen, when you can drive like this, when you're literally the best driver in the game, um, you don't have to shoot the three that much. So... Um, Cash, I guess I'll go to you. What what makes Shea so effective? It's the ability for everyone in the building to know exactly what he wants to do and the fact that he can still do it mm. seemingly easily because he is, as you mentioned, crafty and that, like, you know, for years, everyone's been talking about that, like, herky-jerky game he's got and it's really funky, but it works. And, yeah, crafty is the best word for it because he just finds a way to beat you off the dribble. It almost doesn't matter who's in front of him defensively uh, what the defensive scheme is, how stacked the paint it. Like, he finds a way to beat you off the dribble and get to the paint and get to the rim at will. And then he's become a really good uh, kind of pull-up mid-range guy, floater range guy. Now, to your point, he's not a great three-point shooter. Yeah, I think he's just below league average. He just, uh, just doesn't shoot, though. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, uh, he's, so like, that, he's like new tomorrow. almost. That's the one thing keeping him from being like a true three-level scorer. But when you can get to the rim at will, when you can score obviously at the rim or from the like short mid-range floater range and you have point guard instincts as a passer, like you're really tough to stop offensively and that's what we're seeing with Shea. And I mean, I I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. I think he's just going to continue to get better. I think he's official. Like I thought last year, I thought the last couple of years he's been knocking on the door superstar status. I think he's blown that door open this year. I think he's a true blue superstar in the NBA right now, especially offensively, obviously. Um, and I think the shooting will probably come over time. I'm not saying he's ever going to, I'm not saying he's going to be like a 40% three-point shooter at some point, but I just think based on the way his career has gone and even the way he's improved as like a mid-range pull-up guy, mm. I think the next step is for him to be like even just an average three-point shooter. And if he does that, yeah, good God, like get out the way because it, like th- he it really- is now at the level where if the Thunder are good enough and they could be good enough as soon as next season, and Wolf and I have talked about this off air, we're talking about a guy who will be in the MVP conversation. Yeah, I, I brought up the DeMar thing, and it, it's similar in the sense that DeMar, you saw, would say, like, I don't need the three. No, I feel like Shea actually doesn't need the three. I feel like DeMar at certain points, I'm like, okay, maybe against the Cavs, you might need the three, you know, yeah. or certain opponents. Shea, I actually have not seen guys really slow him down, man. By the way, he also gets to the free throw line 11 times a game and yeah. shoots 91% from there. Just, just absurd. Again, that craftiness, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, like... I think this is why it maybe behooves the Thunder. Not maybe. It behooves the Thunder to put more shooting around him. Isaiah right. like, Joe, I, baby. Yeah, I mean, Isaiah oh, Joe, man. like, they, they picked him up early this season and it, like, completely transformed their offense. Just having one guy yep. who was a threat to shoot on the move, had serious range, and, like, a quick trigger, right? Like, By the way, why was he cut? That's a great question. Sixers. You have to ask Rock Divers about that one. But, <laughs> um, 
but but I think yeah. In in terms of like, does he need the three? Like, okay, would it help for him to have it in his bag? Of course, but he's doing all this like without you know high volume or high efficiency three point shooting. And I, I haven't checked lately. I don't know what it is, but like for most of the season, he's been carrying like sixty three, sixty four percent true shooting, like six percentage points above league average. That's insane. And obviously, a lot of that is like how often he gets to the free throw line and how effectively he shoots there, how effectively he shoots like on those mid-range pull-ups and how often he gets to the rim and finishes there. But yeah, you don't really need the three ball when you can score that efficiently. And when you're consistently like getting into the paint, collapsing defenses and like can pass the way that he can, if he just had more three-point shooting around him, like he would be that much more effective. Um, I mean, to me, the key for him is just the deceleration, like change of pace generally, but like his ability to go not even just like zero to 60, which he does really well, but like 60 to zero. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's so slippery and so hard to stay in front of because, like, as a defender, your momentum is always going to be carrying you in one direction or another, and he's going to toy with that, right? Like, he is going to get you leaning and lurching, and his ability to just, like, slow himself down means that as a defender, like, you're pretty much constantly going to be off balance. And, like, his ability to do that is second to none. Like, that's what makes this driving game so effective is how well, how quickly he can change speeds. And it just makes it impossible to to know what he's going to... Like you say, everybody in the building knows what he wants to do. In simplistic terms, like, yeah, he yeah, wants getting, to drive yeah. the ball. How but he's going to get there is You the don't know what yeah. he wants to do in terms of which direction right. he's going to go, what speed he's going to go at, which hand he's going to use to finish. Like, And he has all like so many counters in his bag. Like you said, it's like you can't... There's there's no way that you can prepare for that. Yeah. By the way, not, not a bad defensive player too, by the way. 1.7 steals per game and a block a game. Um, yeah. Much better this year than yeah, in past. Say, he's taking a step on Man. that end for sure. So we're talking about a player who, I mean, is just obviously phenomenal, um, especially offensively and getting better defensively as well. And I'm curious because he's, okay, so he's only 24 years old. And I was thinking about the, the best 25 and under point guards in the league right now. And I excluded Luca because, I mean, he's, I mean, if, if we put Luca in there, then okay, Luke, it's just Luca. Okay, yeah. so we're just going to take out Luca. Um, the list I had was Darius Garland, LaMelo Ball. Tyrese Halliburton, Shea Gilgis Alexander, John Morant, Trey Young, De'Aaron Fox. First off, lots of great talent there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, where would you put Shea in that group? Number one. Yep. Same. Really? Number this, one. Is there no discussion? I think there's he's no the, discussion I think with John the, Morant. No, I agree. Listen, well, I think he's the best of that group right now. I think he's having the best season of sure, that yeah. great group. Like there are guys in that like Ja, obviously there's the off court stuff going on. But if you yeah. looked at the season he was having, especially early and, and the year Memphis was having, obviously he's in the conversation. But I think genuinely even if you take the off-court stuff out of the equation, I think Shea was having a better season than even Ja this year. Uh, Garland is someone I think has been really underrated this year. I think he's been a f- had a phenomenal oh, yeah. balance between his scoring and playmaking on Basically, that. Basically, after he recovered from Gary ch- scratching his eyes out yeah, he's in been game fine. one, he's been amazing. He's been fine. But no, th- listen, there's a, there's a ton of talent at, yeah. in the backcourt, in the NBA. We know that. And especially 25 and under talent. And I think of all of it, I think Shea Gilgis-Alexander is the best of the bunch non-Luka division. He's the best non-Slovenian under-25 uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. point guard in the NBA. And I also think of that group, I would take him going forward as well. Right. Like, I, I, I genuinely think he's that good, and it's not because he's Canadian and we're Canadian. Like, he's just that good for all of the reasons we've talked about. And also, I think as you start to now project going forward the way the Thunder are going to look, I don't think it's going to be a case of like, oh, he's the best of the bunch, but he doesn't have the team success. Like, I think as soon as next season, we will be talking about him being the best player on possibly the best team of the players in that group. Um, by the way, OKC has a better record than Toronto. Just 
Yeah, so I know that, they're, they're a better team than the Raptors this year. Like uh, they're, they're like two games out of a top four seed in the West. Now the West is a di- like the with the Raptors' current record, they'd also be like three games out of four. I'm aware. But, I'm aware. But, yes, I think the Thunder have been better than the Raptors this season. Yeah. And that game in Oklahoma City didn't exactly do anything. Oh to. man. Oh, we'll get to that in a sec. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, like if you're comparing him to Ja, who I'd probably put second on that list. Agreed. I think Jaw's a better passer. Uh, and by a not insignificant margin. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, what does Jaw do better than Shea? Nope. Shea's a better defender. Uh, I was going to make shoot. some jokes, but uh, I'm not going to. Yeah, no, exactly. No, let's, Shea, let's not no, go there. But, also, go if there. We are, but if we are talking about, like, going forward and who you'd rather start, like, that does come into account. If we're just talking about basketball, yeah, Jaw's a better passer, but Shea, the best, like, Jaw's best skill, getting to the rim, driving, whatever, Shea probably does it even better than he does. For sure he does. And then he's a better shooter although not a great shooter a much better defender mm. like yeah yeah and and, and again uh, we could put the off court stuff in there too um what about the first time all-stars this year uh halliburton fox well i mean i, I mean I love Hall- halliburton. Is, he's the best passer fun. is he yeah. the best passer of this group i think so yeah i think halliburton no better than trey are you kidding uh, okay, fair. Trey Trey's the better passer than Halliburton, but Trey's like a Hallib- top three passer in the league. Yeah, so you Tyrese, Hallibur- Halliburton, Tyrese Halliburton's a more efficient a- passer. Meaning what? He he is smarter with his. I'd say he's smarter with his. Trey is a more talented passer, but also takes some wild chances with his passes that lead to uh, team killing turnovers. Like if they had a passing competition, I think Trey Young would win. I think if you Handily. ask, I think if you ask coaches around the league who they would take as a passer, I wouldn't be surprised if Tyrese Halliburton gets more votes. Uh, I would. <laughs> Trey is like a, I mean, Hall- oh, Trey's amazing. Halliburton's yeah, a, a wonderful passer. Trey is like a generation. No, I agree passer. with that. I agree with that. And yeah, I mean, like all, like his other tendencies as a basketball player and the fact that in spite of him being a magical passer, guys still don't really like playing with him yeah. because of the way that he can monopolize the ball and the way that Halliburton doesn't means that if you're talking about lead guards and who you would rather as an overall playmaker, maybe you would want Halliburton. I'm fine with that. But if we're talking like, yeah, pure pure passing ability. I agree. I agree. And and in terms of that, like as a, a lead playmaker, like if Trey didn't have all those other tendencies, if he was a little bit more willing to get off the ball earlier and move around without the ball and things that he doesn't do that make him frustrating, if that weren't an issue, like the the higher risk, higher reward style of passing is one that I would still lean to. Like the willingness to take those chances and make passes that like a defense can't really account for. I mean that that is what can take an offense from being really good to like over the top special. Like, no, that's fair. And yeah. and that's something that he does that Halliburton can't. So yeah, I mean that it, he's a really tough like Trey is a really tough player to evaluate just because sure. of like the the magnitude of the strengths and the weaknesses. Right, right. I just don't know how to balance them against one another. Like I think the safer pick if we were ranking them would be to go with Halliburton. Mm-hmm. For that reason, just because there's a kind of uh, team destabilizing element with Trey that I don't think is ever going to be there with Halliburton. I, it seems Halliburton like everyone had, loves Halliburton. Dude, he's way. he's had yeah. stretches this season where he'll have like a four or five game stretch with like forty to fifty assists and like six turnovers, yeah. five turnovers. Like, yeah, he's absurd. His combination of a scoring and shooting efficiency with that playmaking efficiency. I've been saying this like this Halliburton season this year is. Very reminiscent for me of like Steve Nash, where it's maybe the closest, not in all, in total style, but in performance and the way he's gone about it. I feel like this Halliburton season is one of the closest things I've seen to Steve Nash. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. It's funny because Trey is the guy who was getting the Steve Nash comps for I know. a while. 
Man, this is why Steve was a two-time MVP. By the way, according to Steve Nash, um, Michael Grange, by the way, wrote a piece about if Shea oh, yeah, could be the greatest that. Canadian ball baller, and uh, Steve Nash replied on Twitter, and he said, yes, he can. Loves Shea's game. Um, but anyway, look, this is a, it's a good discussion. We've got to talk about young point guards more often. But uh, we have to wrap up the show, uh, and uh, we are going to uh, go to the Between the Lines segment brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. The line tonight for this game is the Raptors at minus six and a half points. Um I mean, yeah, on this topic of Shea Gilgis Alexander, because I'm expecting a big game from him tonight. Um, um, so the last time he was in Toronto, right? Obviously, you gotta exclude Tampa. Um, Shea had a driving kick sequence to Mike Muscala for a game-winning three. To be honest, the only reason Muscala was open because the Raptors uh, sent two guys directly at Shea, and Shea obviously made the right read. Muscala made the three. Um, that was also the game where, by the way, Champagne missed the uh, tip-in. That's right. Uh, at the very, very end there. And, um, well, he know. made it. It just was. It was too late, right? Oh, right. That's yeah. right. It was. It was overturned. Um, but still, that was the game-winning play. The last time before that in Toronto, this is shortly before the pandemic. Um, Shea hit a floater off a kickout from Chris Paul. Shea broke down the defense and hit a floater to go up with 36 seconds left to win the game for OKC. Obviously, the OKC Thunder have changed a lot. My point is, Shea has had some very, very clutch moments in Toronto, and I definitely look out for that. Um, the last time the Raptors played OKC, the Raptors lost 132 to 113. It was uh, one of their worst losses of the season. And, uh, you know, look, the rotation was pretty different. I mean, Wancho, Malachi, Thad, Delano were the guys off the bench. You know, Christian was starting. I think the Raptors obviously have a much stronger um, starting group and they're also way more healthy right now. But I do think it'll be a very tough game. I think the Raptors will ultimately win, but I actually do like OKC to cover here. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, Good luck to everyone um, going to the game, and, and I'm sure there'll be a huge cheer for Shea. The Raptors have consistently done this like segment where they highlight Canadian players and they put them on the broadcast. So I'm looking forward to uh, to some very, very light tampering that goes on. No, I'm just kidding. It's just a celebration of Canadian greatness. Anyway, that was Between the Lines brought to you by Bet Reverse. It's a whole new game, and that does it for us today. I've been your host, Willu, and you've been listening to The Raptors Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find The Raptors Show wherever you listen to podcasts, and please rate and uh, review the show. Reminder, we're streaming live on Sportsnet's YouTube channel and airing live on Sportsnet 360, Monday to Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. Thanks once again to Joe Scashaw and Joe Wolf on uh, our board producer, Derek Brandell and Jennifer Rollin. We're hopping on the YouTube stream, and we'll be back tomorrow. I do not finish second.